0: I want to say a, a few words today about technology, because uh, what we're, we're trying to do here is to demonstrate the distinction between uh, a people's technology and a corporate technology, a difference between a democratic technology and a technology bred uh, by uh, multinational corporations. For example, one of the reasons why corporations have never liked solar energy is that it is inherently decentralized. It's inherently an abundant supplies, you know, three billion years worth, we're told. Um, and it's very difficult to monopolize, to cartelize, or to embargo. Uh, you know, one way to get solar energy quick is, is to make sure that Exxon owns the sun. If Exxon owns the sun, <laughs> that, give it a solar, solar energy.
1: I don't know about you, but I grew up with a healthy fear for our planet's future. With headlines that read we only had 40 years of oil reserves left. About wars in the Middle East and documentaries about who killed the electric car. And it felt like the world as we knew it was headed towards a cliff and there was no possible way to save it. But I also got a car at 16 and a truck at 21 and I got 15 miles per gallon. I turned on my lights at all hours of the day and left them on when I left the house. And I took for granted the creature comforts that the system bestowed upon me, even while being scared of the cost. These problems still exist today, but we have come a long, long way in the past 20 years towards solving these problems. Also over the past few years, I have started to take for granted how quickly that all of this has changed, because in my mind, it hasn't changed fast enough. I have been frustrated, as many have, that alternative energies and technologies have taken so long to find their place in the mainstream culture. But I have grown accustomed to a fast rate of change that allows me to forget that for most of our history, change has happened very slowly. That the change that I have been able to see in my lifetime is actually the product of years and years of work by people who have fought their entire lives for a cause. And that even my ability to expect change at a faster rate is a product of the work that they have done. In the next three episodes, we are going to talk to renewable energy visionary, John Schaefer. John's company, Real Goods, was the first to widely market and sell this technology. We will learn how his life on the commune influenced the rise of solar panels in California. We will talk about how innovation and change often occurs on the fringes of society And we will also learn about the state of solar now. This series is about solar, and this is The Inheritance Project.
0: But that is the problem with solar energy as far as corporations are concerned. Too accessible, too decentralized, not subject
1: to control, and infinite in source. This is audio of then-Green Party presidential candidate Ralph Nader speaking at the Solar Living Institute's annual Solfest Festival in Hopland, California in 2000. The Solar Institute that opened on the summer solstice in 1996 was the culmination of 25 years of work by its founder and renewable energy visionary John Schaefer. John was a back-to-the-lander who had made his way from L.A. to Mendocino County to live off the land on a commune of 10 to 15 people— In 1971, he later opened the self-proclaimed New Age general store, Real Goods, that sold everything you needed to live off the grid, but more importantly, created a community of like-minded people wanting to innovate ways to change society and steer them towards a more inclusive, more fair, and more sustainable future. In the 1980s, John became the world's largest distributor of solar power and solar-powered products in the world. The Solar Living Institute was created to showcase his vision in real time and demonstrate all the ways that we could harness the power of nature while still enjoying the comforts of technology. As I have found with many of my interviews, John's destiny wasn't planned. And in fact, he too was shaped and molded by the time and society he was born into. And so we step back in time to find the beginning of his origin story. And for John, that begins in 1950s Hollywood
2: yeah my father was a film editor um, He was actually born in the Bronx in 1902. He had a an uncle who was a famous uh, pre-talking movie star Bill Russell and he came back to New York in like 1918 1919 and got my father and 40 of his relatives to come out to Hollywood in early Hollywood in like 1919 when it was obviously just blossoming right. So he came out in 1919, went to USC, and um, became a saxophone player, traveled around the world in a boat in 1925, went to Hong Kong and Singapore and Egypt, to to the pyramids in Egypt, playing saxophone on a boat. And then he, uh, he got out of USC in about 1925, got a job as an assistant film editor in Hollywood, and then he worked his way up to film editor. An Academy Award nomination for the well. He did the early Davy Crockett's. So wow. for me, when I was in grammar school in 1953, I was born in 1949, I had the first coonskin cap in the, in the third yeah. grade, so I was kind of revered for that. Fess Parker, right? Fess Parker, Buddy Ebsen, yeah. 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 <laughs> of course, I memorized the uh, Born on a Mountaintop in Tennessee, Kilt him a Bar when he was only three song. So that was an interesting place to grow up in Brentwood with um, a lot of the a lot of those uh, actors and famous people around In
1: 1967 John went off to college at UC Berkeley to study anthropology It was a time not unlike today with hints of revolution in the air protests filled the streets against the war in Vietnam and racial injustice and belief in the systems that had raised them were crumbling. In 63, JFK was assassinated. The Vietnam War raged. The Watts riots broke out in 1965. MLK was assassinated in April of 68. And Robert F. Kennedy, later that June, in a ballroom not so far away in California. Revolution was at hand.
2: Didn't know what I wanted to do, but when I I got to Berkeley, probably three days into Berkeley, living in the dorms, I smoked my first joint <laughs> and um, a whole new world was born. This was the summer, this was early 1967. And yeah. The Summer of Love was coming, and you know, Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead, and all right. of the rock concerts in San Francisco, and Fillmore and Winterland. And at the same time, like the first week I was there was Stop the Draft Week. Mm-hmm. So the buses were rolling down, and we would go out in the streets and stand in front of the, the buses with the draft people being drafted and yeah. you know chanting hell no we won't go and hey hey lbj how many boys did you kill today and right. and then it was people's park with um, we we took this vacant park that's university owned and planted gardens in there and flowers and became this real you know, people's mecca and so all of this was just completely mind awakening to me at the time I remember one day I was getting more and more radicalized and I was standing there in Sproul Plaza and um, the the California Highway Patrol and the Alameda County Sheriff's were around and and I took it upon myself to get in a leadership position and went out on the telegraph and Bancroft and put my fist up and said, we're taking the streets and everyone (laughs) suddenly followed me. And shortly after that, um, Ronald Reagan had made a declaration that University of California at Berkeley is a four year education in, in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, we're not going to allow this to happen anymore. And they started the crackdown, and people were shot in the streets. And uh, this guy, James Rector, was killed, and People's Park was happening. And then they threw up the fences around People's Park. And mm-hmm. we all came up with loaves of bread inside of which we'd put wire cutters they thought we were coming to potluck yeah. we we were coming to cut down the fence, which we did, wow. <laughs> and that turned into another riot, so you know being radicalized in um, politics open mind uh mind opening substances like marijuana, uh summer of love, all this incredible music in the streets, going to concerts, you know being eighteen years old, and you know learning about sex, drugs, and rock and roll was yeah. Very exciting time to be there. And the background of it all for me was how the how the environment fit in, which kind of came a little bit later. And for me, that was my it was my real solace, my salvation. And I think that kind of evolved into me wanting to, you know, make a life of. Um, uh, somehow being in nature to achieve that kind of peace and solitude. Right around the same time was the first Earth Day in 1970, which which I saw to be a mix between the two sides of me together, with politics of improving the Earth and stopping the decay and stopping all the destruction, and at the same time preserving the wilderness that I derive so much peace and solace from. So I think that was kind of an evolution for me that may have been the the future foundation for why I started this business to to combine the two of those together.
1: Politics and environmentalism became the two narratives of his life. And in 1968, he picked up his first whole earth catalog that on the cover had a photo of the earth from outer space taken by Apollo 8 astronaut William Anders. This catalog became his Bible for living, a guide to living off the land and communal life. So
2: anyway, 1971, I graduated, went to hitchhiked around um, Mexico and Central America for five months and lived on $250 for five months, sleeping in hammocks and, you know, living (laughs) off of basically nothing and living on the beach and eating bananas and rolls and not much pretty skinny.
1: When he came back, he spent time doing odd jobs as a janitor and painting houses until one day a friend of his from college called him up and invited him up to a newly founded quote, rainbow commune. A 300 acre commune that they had just bought for $60,000 in Mendocino County, just above Ukiah, California.
2: I just wasn't going, you know, from janitor to painter to recycler. Then a friend of mine, Mark, who I had gone to college with, said hey some friends of mine are are buying some property up in mendocino county and they want to start a commune right now they're living in fort bragg but they're trying to buy this land in greenwood ridge and labor day of 1972 i i went up there with my, my friend jim and another friend laurel we went up for a weekend um and it was just complete paradise, you know, 300, 290 acres that they'd bought for $60,000, 300 an acre. Wow. The woods of Mendocino <laughs> and the giant redwoods and um, creeks and waterfalls and swimming holes where you can swim naked and teepees and just, just complete and utter paradise. And yeah. I basically went up for the weekend in 72 and spent about spent eight years there and never left.
1: In John's words, they were there to unlearn everything that they had been taught for the first 20 years of their lives, and to put into practice their morals and beliefs. They built their own houses, they grew their own food, created their own institutions, and wrote their own bylaws. They experimented with drugs and looked to break down the political structures of race and sex and heteronormative relationships.
2: I lived in a i lived in a teepee and i lived in a tent i remember the winter of 73 there was like 70 inches of rain and i was living in a tent it wasn't easy and then i built a yurt i lived in a little yurt for a while and then i built a cabin lived in that cabin for a while and it was a really interesting political lesson because it it wasn't a religious commune in any sense of the word, but it was more of anything was a political commune. People had come from Berkeley, New York, L.A., and um, everyone saw this experience as a way to start from scratch and create all our own laws. So it was kind of eliminating everything that society put on us, and it was time for us to figure out how we did it from scratch ourselves and it wasn't easy and we'd have these Sunday morning meetings which would drone on and on and on and talk about, you know, and the the certain leaders would emerge and certain jerks would emerge and um, just, you know, rehashing or hashing for the first time all the stuff in practice that we'd studied in theory.
1: I should add here that I too was born on one of these quote unquote communes called Greenfield Ranch in 1986. And I remember the joys and the troubles of getting along in a communal setting. And the ranch committee meetings of who would be responsible for upkeeping the road or settling water rights disputes. You know, one thing I remember from my childhood is, is just the difficulty of, of working together with people from all different walks of life that have come there for that shared experience but have kind of eccentricities very much their own. You know, I think a lot of our generation is kind of remaking the systems of the world at the moment. And we maybe have a belief that, that it should be really easy. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, a little bit more about the struggles of putting those kind of
2: optimistic ideas into
1: practice. Well, I think it,
2: I think it kind of boils down to humans are a very, very challenging species. Yeah, That's kind of what the commune taught me. Yeah. And, and that on a larger scale happened at the Solar Living Center where, you, I mean, I had the advantage of being having the final say and being in charge of being the CEO, but um, it, it's hard because people can be real jerks. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's, it's really hard to find a way to get past that if you don't, without the self-realization though. That self-understanding is not something that's easily taught. It's something that you have to learn through pain and suffering that it doesn't do you any good to hold resentments and be jealous. I mean, you, you have to recognize those as human emotions, but you have to put them in perspective and realize that you can't let them overtake your personality, and yeah. you got, you got to give up, and you got to learn humility and vulnerability. One of my greatest lessons is just their strength and vulnerability. People who tend to be closed-minded are afraid to be vulnerable because it, they think it shows weakness. But right. once you meet people that can be vulnerable, you can see that as a real strength.
1: As he writes in his book, A Place in the Sun, these were characters at ease on either side of the law that had deep mistrust of the institutions that got them into wars, created massive pollution and cut down the forests. But John was a contrarian, even in a world of contrarians, a Robin Hood type of figure. And he loved technology, and soon, the need for money to survive life up on the mountain sent him in search of a day job to pay for it.
2: So anyway, putting all this into practice, the commune was absolutely fascinating. So after I'd been there about, i say moved up in 72, I had a job working as a choker setter in the woods for this guy Dave Pronsolino, who was the cat skinner. So felt kind of weird. I, I was involved in the logging industry. Right. But it was, I was broke, and it was paying me $6 an hour. And then I worked at the Philo Mill for a while, pulling green chain, giant you know, 2 by
1: 12s off of the hill as fast as I could come down Wow, yeah. the line. That was pretty interesting. Faced with the conundrum of joining the system in order to pay for living outside of it, he got a tech job with the county in downtown conservative Ukiah, running their computers and scanning time cards and tax documents. He also started noticing things that could make his life on the ranch a little easier. Um, After a few years at the commune, everyone was living with kerosene lamps
2: and chimneys would break all the time. The lamps would go out. The little kids, people are starting to have babies, would be squinting to try to read stories at night. And there wasn't any refrigeration. There were ice boxes and all that. And then right around that time, propane refrigerators just started coming into being and then I remember being down in Berkeley one time at an industrial shop and they had these 12 volt batteries called Go Batteries and I said, now this is interesting, this big giant battery, I wonder what I could use that for and I bought that in Berkeley and brought it home so I went into town and at a hardware store in Ukiah, I got just a little porcelain light fixture and uh they had these old dusty 12 volt bulbs screwed gotten in and got one of those little y splitters right. and put in like three light bulbs at 50 100 watt and then i took the two wires off the edge of those bulbs and put one to positive and one to negative and just like put some tape in <laughs> terminals <laughs> and all of a sudden the, the lights lit up and this was like complete aha, huh eureka moment for me that I could actually light light bulbs in this house that i have been living in for four years in the woods with, with kerosene and candles. And people that could see in the commune that I was experimenting with it, this stuff, looking at me askance, like, what, is, what does he think he's doing? You know, we are we're a commune here in the woods. We don't have these kind of city bullshit creature comforts here. But um, I, I kept doing it. And now that I had the light, the question was, how do you charge the battery? And I, I found this, there's this place in Laytonville, this guy, Jim Cullen, had just started this business called the, the Wilderness Home Power System and how to do it. And he put together a little kit, and in the kit was a, was a solenoid valve that you could put in your car and then hook up your alternator to it and it allowed you to charge a, a secondary battery in your trunk as you were driving, charging your main yeah. battery. So I had a little, it was a little yellow Volkswagen Bug convertible. And the seat was gone for some reason, so we put a redwood stump in there with my seat. (laughs) And of course, there were no seat belts, And uh, so I had 35 miles in, 35 miles back every day. So I thought, here's the ideal situation for my solenoid to charge my battery. So I had that big, giant Go battery in the trunk. Every night, I'd come into work, go back, and it'd be
1: charged. For the first time, John had lights on the ranch, and he had a way of charging that battery every day to and from work. And so he started asking himself... What else would run off this car battery?
2: Pretty soon, I found a store that was selling uh, TVs for the for the RV industry, 12 volt televisions. There's a 12 inch, 12 volts. I picked up one of those. I, you know, had it under a blanket <clears throat> in the car. If anyone had seen that at the commune, I would have been toast. You probably right. would have been evicted immediately. <laughs> 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 the, the man's TV, the evil uh, society yeah. TV. Anyway, so I I brought it up to the house and. The only channel that came in really well was NBC. So that Saturday night, we put on um, Saturday Night Live. This was in the early days with Gilda Radner and John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Roseanne, Roseanne Dana. So one by one, I'd I invite my closest friends at the commune up. I don't tell anybody. I would tell right. anybody, but come up here. And, and I had this beautiful loft upstairs. We'd lie back in bed. And here we were. We'd been here for you know three years, hadn't ever seen tv or anything like this and here we're watching saturday night live and funny and revolutionary there was this movement happening of all these people that love to be in the woods and getting out of the cities all of a sudden we're landing here so i thought what what could i do to enable all of these people to to do what i'm doing here to kind of popularize this this uh, alternative energy in the woods and i started kind of gathering uh A filing cabinet. Like, first there were propane lamps. Like, start a file on those and then start a file on wind generators and all of the Whole Earth catalogs.
1: He went back to his beloved Whole Earth catalog for inspiration. He built a wind generator to help charge the batteries on windy days. He started making a list of all the creature comforts that would work up on the ranch off the grid. He built himself a filing cabinet from the stump of a virgin redwood tree and started keeping records of wholesale prices of the products that they used every day. There were no phones on the ranch, so he would handwrite letters to companies to find out the prices of, say, a thousand kerosene lanterns, waiting two to three weeks for a reply. Each day he went into town, he would check prices at local hardware stores until he knew the market inside and out.
2: And as I worked at the computer center, um, I would go over there five days a week. So typically I would leave leave 9 uh, o'clock at night or so, go get a nice... 16-ounce Rainier Ale and a fat joint, and i drive over the hill. And I remember the Boonville Road, you know, those turnouts at the top. Yeah. I'd pull over there, and the full moon would be rising, and I'd puff on this joint, and I'd, I'd start having these fantasies about maybe I could open up a store. I ended up meeting the guy who had a store already in Garberville, called Open Circle Trading Company, and he liked my vision, and I liked what he was doing. We came across a place in Willits that was called the Far, Far West Museum. (laughs) And uh, we ended up renting that, and then eventually we bought it. But we opened up in June of 78, and it was kind of an instant success.
1: Real Goods did over $1 million in sales in the first year. He had found a very niche market, offering everything you need to make your life easier off the grid and put it all in one place. But his life was about to change even more. When one day a guy showed up in a Porsche with something that he had never heard of. We had
2: this, we had a whole room for alternative energy that, that had just begun, but there really wasn't much there. There were some batteries and some solenoids. and The revolutionary thing happened in, I think it was like late 78. This guy named David Lem came up in a Porsche and uh, he brought in a photovoltaic panel. This was back when we... No one could even pronounce it were photovolactics. Right. I didn't know what they were. Yeah. And so we went out in the parking lot and hooked it up, hooked the wires up, and it would run lights, and it would run fans, and it would run buzzers. So we said, yeah, at least we could probably sell these things. Can you get us more? So he came back, I think three or five, a week later, and we bought all those. And they were, they were like, I remember we were selling them for $100 a watt so the nine little 9 watt panel was $900 right? and you know now they're $0.50 cents a watt so right. $100 watt, $0.50 a watt but we sold out on the first 5 or 10 and then pretty soon we were ordering these things by the thousand and we were the only company that, that I knew of in, in the United States at the time that was selling them. These had come out of, of LA, they were originally designed for the space industry but no one had ever sold them domestically so Obviously we saw the potential. It was just so exciting to think of all these people and all these homes which numbered about ten thousands by now in Mendocino County could suddenly have some of the creature comforts that they left the city for. So
1: it was a very exciting time. In the next episode we will explore how John found the first real market for solar energy and how two industries grew and developed together. Next time The marijuana industry revolutionizes solar.
2: They were really the only ones that could afford the solar panels. The solar industry started growing up because of these marijuana growers in the hills who supported it. It wouldn't have really taken off. It got its start in Mendocino and Humboldt counties because of them, and it wouldn't have taken off without them.
1: Special thanks for this episode go to Maria Gillardin at TUC Radio for all her help tracking down Ralph Nader's speech. And special thanks to Mackenzie Bell and Laurel Near for their help on this episode. See you next week.